0: Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Some people, by age 13, have found the thing that will become their lasting passion. Others haven't. Judith Grizel was firmly in that first group. And even now, she remembers the day when everything shifted. At 13, I drank a ton of
1: alcohol, and I absolutely loved it. It was a profound,
0: life-changing experience. Grizel would ultimately become a scholar, a scientist, a professor, an author. But she didn't know that on that crucial day when she was 13. And for the next 10 years, she says, she didn't turn down a single mind-altering substance.
1: So every chance I had, I I took a drug. But at the same time, I got more and more in denial of my the consequences of taking those drugs. So it's a really strange mental illness where you collude in your own death ultimately, you know, so I'm participating. I think it's hard, I think, for some people to view this as a disease because with most diseases, you're sort of an innocent victim. I mean, you're just living your life and you find a lump in your breast or something and you don't know how it got there. But here I was, you know, doing whatever I
0: could do to get as much as I could. Being infatuated can sometimes be wonderful, but for Grizel, it cost her pretty much everything money, relationships, school. And I
1: fortunately, at 23, ended up in treatment, kind of, you know, not realizing what I was in for. And with a few weeks, not having anything in me, I realized, wow, my life looks so different from the way I dreamed it would be, say, when I was eight or nine or 12, before I had picked up. And I, I was kind of shocked and surprised that it was so different from what I had dreamed.
0: What would happen next is such a strange bookend to what happened early on, it's hard to believe. But Judith Grizel went from being a girl who was lost in addiction to a woman who insisted on understanding how that addiction had taken control of her. She got a Ph.D. and published academic papers. She's now a professor of neuroscience and psychology at Bucknell University. And she's the author of the book Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction. And Grizel, from her unusual vantage point, happens to be watching an amazing social transformation, a transformation in America's relationship with drugs. Consider this. In the year 2000, which wasn't all that long ago, 20,000 people died from drug overdoses. In 2017, the number of overdose deaths had more than tripled to 70,000. More Americans now die of overdoses than die from guns. That wasn't true in 2000. More Americans now die of overdoses than die in car crashes. That also wasn't true in 2000.
1: A lot of that is the way that opiates work. So it's very hard to die of an overdose. You can do it of a stimulant. And even of alcohol, it's relatively difficult, although it happens, you know, fairly often. But with opiates, it's very narrow ledge between feeling some relief from withdrawal and actually dying.
0: Judith Grizel hit bottom in the 80s when stimulants were popular. But we're living at a time when the chemical refinement of opiates and the creation of synthetics like fentanyl they've radically increased the potency of what's out there.
1: And so I think what happens is that, you know, there's a very small place between misery and death. <laughs> and people are trying to stay there, and that's tough to do when you don't know what you're buying on the street, you know, or you're sometimes trying to withdraw. Every time you you go off of them for a little while, your brain starts to readapt to not have them, and then you're less tolerant, and then you you never sort of know where you can where you should land
0: this isn't the first time that opiates have been popular they also caught on in the early 20th century when they were often prescribed to women and to kids but our modern ability to cook up incredibly strong stuff in the lab that changes the equation and the way that we use drugs now grizel notes it's changed quite a bit so it looks
1: to me anyway, that people, although we've used since the beginning of time, we tended to do it in community settings where there was some ritual around it, like passing the peace pipe or the bowl or the drink, the kava bowl or something. And so it was a part of a community thing, and then there were certain constraints around using that way. I think what's new in at least probably the industrial age and beyond is using in isolation, having access to very high concentrations that you could sort of deliver on demand. You know, you didn't have to wait for it to come to you. You could buy whatever, you know, grain alcohol for that matter. So I think that it's both a change in us um, combined with a natural drive and better access to higher potency drugs.
0: In your research, do you feel like communities and cultures across time and place have always used drugs or like mind-altering substances and that that's just kind of like you know a piece of who we are?
1: I do think so. From what we see and anthropologists and uh, sociologists and people who study humans since the beginning of time notice is that everybody who had access to some mind-altering chemical has used it. I guess the The sort of funny quote is that the Inuit had the misfortune of being unable to grow anything, and so they weren't able to modify their experience with drugs. But as far as we know, every other culture has been using drugs purposely, and it's not only humans. It's all kinds of animals, mammals, birds will go after fermenting berries, Insects will take chemicals. Yeah. One of my favorite insect stories is about a um, species of ant in South America, I think, where they devote part of their colony to raising some kind of beetle. And this beetle, you know, makes them not able to make so many ants. And also, you know, they have to feed the beetles and take care of them and keep them clean. But the beetles grow some interesting fungus, I guess, on the back of their little beetle legs, you know, where the little hairy legs are, mm. and in that hair grow some fungus that the ants harvest occasionally together. It seems like a community effort. And then the ants all eat the fungus, and then they get really slow. And it seems there's no nutritional value in the fungus. It's costing them time and effort, mm. but they seem to enjoy that occasional
0: holiday. You um have written that a person has a much better chance of surviving brain cancer, at least at the moment, um, than staying clean. Why is that? I mean, you would think, like we, as, you, as we've been talking about, addiction is nothing new, drugs are nothing new, uh, addictive substances are nothing new. How can we not you know, be better at this point at you know, solving addiction?
1: While many of us, so everybody, I guess, or mostly everybody wants to try drugs, some people like me are especially susceptible to the adaptation that occurs in the brain that causes addiction. And when that happens, it's really hard to kind of dial it back. And I think it's hard from a neurobiological perspective because, as we said, the drugs are so potent and Also, from a social perspective, because they're so widely available. So, you know, one of the worries I have about marijuana lately is as it becomes more and more part of our culture, it's going to be harder and harder for people like me to
0: stay away from it. Hmm. So... contrast uh, marijuana and alcohol a little bit for me because the, the I think these are real two really interesting substances because we're living at a time of course where a lot of laws around marijuana in different states are being liberalized it, it in some places this is it's something that's fine to do and uh, you know at least to a certain extent like you can have possess a little bit of it um, obviously alcohol is something we've tried to outlaw in the past, didn't work out that well. But, you know, I I just wonder how you think about these two substances. Are they similar? Should one in your mind clearly be legal and the other illegal? Should they? Just give me your sense.
1: Okay, so that's a great question. We've been studying alcohol for a long time, and we haven't been studying marijuana very long at all. We know a lot about how alcohol damages brain tissue and other bodily tissues, how it damages families, how it impairs driving, um, how it costs lives and well-being. We don't know so much about marijuana. I think that's largely because it hasn't been studied so long, so I really am a strong advocate for having the research done so that we can know what are the costs and maybe benefits of THC or other marijuana plant compounds. I think that they're the same, alcohol and marijuana, in that they both activate this core reward pathway in the brain called the mesolimbic dopamine pathway, as do all drugs that are abused. So all addictive drugs share this reward pathway, which is probably why we evolved the tendency to take those drugs, because For the same reason we have the tendency, in a way, to enjoy sex or like tasty foods. You know, they're good and interesting. So I do think marijuana is addictive, as alcohol, of course, is addictive. And by that, I mean that they produce pleasure, so they induce craving. People want to try them and use them. The brain adapts to both so that you become tolerant and dependent, and I do think that both can be harmful. What's left to understand is how marijuana is harmful. Is it going to be as harmful to alcohol, but in different ways? It surely will be in different ways, or maybe not so much. And I think the answer to that is going to depend on lots of things.
0: Well, as you've seen, you know, public policy around uh, marijuana change. I I would say really drastically in the last few years and it seems to me that it, you know this will continue on um I mean obviously this is something that you know you've used before um as you say it's not as studied as alcohol but like how have you how have you viewed it as you see the kind of public policy landscape really shifting around um marijuana and legalization I
1: feel sad about two things, I guess. One is that science has never driven policy on drugs. And I think it is such a shame that we have empirical methods to understand these things, yet superstition or wishful thinking or other kind of political or social forces determine what happens. I guess I just love science and I love the scientific method and how it can help us understand what we're doing. So I think that's a shame. And I also feel sad about the potential damage to young people. I talk to a lot of young people and they point out rightly that there's been a lot of damage from alcohol and tobacco. And so why should we draw the line here? And I think from a logical perspective, they're exactly right. So all three of these drugs, or at least two of them, we know are damaging and they're widely available. But as far as the public shift or even the legislative shift, I think in that conversation, we should be asking and trying to answer what is the evidence showing us about what this can do. And I think it's natural. It seems to always happen this way that people jump on board, you know, fully and this is great and it's gonna cure anxiety and it's gonna cure pain and it's gonna cure post traumatic stress disorder and all the things we don't have cures for, of which there are many, but I think that's really naive. There it's not a panacea. It may be good for some things, it may be that THC is good for some things, it seems like cannabidiol, the non-psychoactive component is definitely good for at least one thing, which is childhood seizures that are really devastating. But I, I'm i a little bit skeptical that it's going to really help with the many things that we think it might, like mental illnesses. And I do think it's more likely that it's going to exacerbate some of those problems, as we've seen recently with psychosis. So that's a major problem in the world. Schizophrenia is uh, a disease characterized by psychosis. And there's pretty growing and clear evidence that smoking high-potency marijuana regularly can catalyze or induce psychosis and schizophrenia then. And that's really going to be a major cost, not to mention anxiety increases or depression increases, which we are seeing some of.
0: Hmm. Okay, so let's um, pause here for just a minute. I'm going to come back with Judith Grizel, who's the author of Never Enough. She's also a professor at Bucknell. And when we come back, how politicians should tackle the drug epidemic and what individual addicts actually need. If you want to read more about Judith Grizel's views and her assessment of the science on marijuana, we've got more from her on our website, innovationhub.org. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. When Judith Grizzell ended up in rehab in her early 20s after 10 years of drinking and taking drugs... She had a hard time dealing with what her life had become. But then she had a thought, a solution that could change everything.
1: It's funny how it came to me. Well, Judy, diseases can be cured. Maybe you can fix this. And honestly, it was only about my own selfish interests. I did not want to think. I was 23, that I had another 30 or 40 years of life. At that time, it seemed like plenty, where I wasn't going to be able to pick up anything. And so I thought, I'll, I'll solve it, and then I'll be able to use.
0: So that was the plan. She'd become a scientist, cure her addiction, and be able to use drugs again. And parts of it really worked out. I took all my
1: addictive, compulsive energy and put it into making note cards and reading the textbook and getting into graduate school. It's kind of, you know, school's a good thing for people like me. It was new every day.
0: Grizel is now a behavioral neuroscientist at Bucknell University. And the addictive part of her personality, she says, it goes back about as far as she can remember. I think my first drug may have been reading.
1: So I had a desire to escape my experience that was present before I drank alcohol. And I can remember I would come home from school. I could read probably upside down, I could read in a car. I'm still this way. I could read walking because it was a way for me to get out of my own head and you know i my life wasn't so bad i don't know why i felt that need to escape my experience but i think i just found it painful and to treat that pain grizel soon started doing more than reading so i can remember thinking you know well i have an exam or i have a funeral to go to or i've got some pla- you know a plane to catch and i would be Not able to stop drinking from the night before and not show up.
0: But as bad as things got, and Grizel herself admits that she didn't turn down drugs or alcohol from age 13 to age 23, in a strange way, she was lucky.
1: You're more likely to be able to get off drugs and get your life sort of back together if it's really bad than if it's really not that bad. So for instance, if it is cancer, and it's a small tumor, that's usually great news. If it's addiction, and you're able to manage it, it's actually bad news. So I think because I hit bottom with stimulants, particularly injecting stimulants in the 1980s, I hit fast, you know, it was like a steep decline. So I, when I didn't have any drugs to tone down, you know, what was going on and and sort of check out. I
0: got scared. Which was right about the time she thought of becoming a scientist, curing her problem so she could use drugs again. And she did train to be a scientist, and she does study addiction. But when it came to a cure, she began to realize the problem was a lot thornier than she'd anticipated.
1: It dawned on me probably, honestly, about seven years in, like, holy cow, this is so complicated. The brain is, you know, more complicated than the universe. So at that point, I actually had a little crisis because I felt like, you know, I'm very good when I have a goal, either a bag of cocaine or a dissertation or, you know, tenure or something like that. And when I didn't have one of those right in front of me, I thought, wow, what am I going to do?
0: What Grizel did was write a book called Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction, which helped her reach for another goal because that final dream she had of using drugs again, she had to leave it behind.
1: And I do believe that it helped me a lot in the long run because I'm 100 percent convinced that if I picked up, it's been 30, almost 33 years, but if I decide to pick up again I think it's most likely that I would end up right where I was, which is to say that I would give up everything I care about
0: so that I could have this relationship with chemicals that kill me. So with this unique perspective, understanding the mind of an addict because it was her mind, and understanding the mind of an addict because she studies the brain, Grizel has been watching a nation wrestling with an increasingly serious drug problem a nation where overdose deaths have more than tripled since 2000, where legions of people are trying to get into rehab and stay off drugs, and where politicians want to figure out how you address the problem. Grizel says we're mostly dealing with it in the wrong way. Politicians often identify the wrong causes, and addressing those isn't going to get you anywhere. The availability of drugs is only a piece of the puzzle. A real solution would mean giving people alternatives.
1: People like me are goal-oriented. I think that's why we can give up anything just for, you know, another bump. But I also think that if we have goals and opportunities that might help us to put those in place of drugs and alcohol. And so in a way, I think that having hope and for something new is really important. And it might be that the increased incidence of addiction reflects an increased incidence of despair or loss of hope. I also feel that, as I said, I was a novelty seeker. And that is one of the personality, you know, genetically mediated inborn tendencies that predicts substance use disorders in my little small town, I got novelty by smoking weed and trying strange things. But I think if there were other ways to do that safely, then it might be that people like me could channel that tendency into something that was not only beneficial for them, but beneficial for the world. So I think I make a good explorer, I make a good scientist, and I made a great addict. So mm. those things maybe go together, and, and it's possible that for young people, opportunities for stepping outside the margins a little bit, that were safe. When I say safe, I don't mean too safe. I just mean not addiction, not car crashes, but something else, travel or some kind of innovation or... Artistic endeavors, creative endeavors—those things are kind of on the edge, and I think those could be helpful.
0: A final question about about you know solutions. Um, I, I, I'll uh, I want to read a quote from your book, which is: um, "The solution is not to be found on the supply side, but rather depends on a change in demand, and that's likely to be an inside job." That speaks to what you were just talking about. But I think an awful lot of people think um, and politicians talk about the notion that this is indeed a supply side problem. Like you put drugs out there and that it's in and of itself is the problem. Talk about that a little bit. And again, like if you were a scientist called in to advise somebody who was maybe more in a political capacity, but you were just the person on the science side and on the side of like, yes, I've experienced addiction and what it's like and how people think. um, How would you counsel them about this idea that the supply is the problem?
1: Well, I have a great thing in my favor, which is that it hasn't worked. You know, if you look at the data and our efforts over the last 50 years to regulate and control drug access, it's been an unbelievable failure. So I guess, you know, the evidence is definitely uh, suggests that trying to control supply is not going to work. But even more than that, our ability to make new chemicals and to make very potent chemicals that are much more easy to traffic because they're in such small quantities, you know, so potent, is, is increased. So as we get fancier guns and surveillance and all of that, we also get more clever. And that I can tell you from my own personal experience, you could not have stopped me. I was going to find a way. And it didn't matter what it cost or what I had to do. And that is not just me. That's why we have such a problem. If it was simple to just, you know, just say no, then people would not do it. So I think that both it hasn't worked and we're getting better and better at finding ways to manipulate it. You know, it might even be the case that in a few years we don't need any chemicals. We can do it directly with electricity. I don't know. But it's not out of the realm of possibility. So then I, I think that we have to look at that drive and see that it's a normal, natural drive that probably in some ways enhances our fitness, but in other ways really detracts from it. And I guess I feel personally that taking a good, honest look at myself and seeing how I was colluding in my own death and hurting a lot of people on the way, I sort of had to take that responsibility. And I don't think that's easy at all. I think it would be lovely if someone were to say, oh, you know, you're doing this, but here, let me fix it for you. But I kind of had to do the hard work of climbing out of that hole. And I didn't do it alone. I'm not saying that, but I, I had to be willing to change. And what made me willing to change was seeing so clearly that I couldn't get enough drugs.
0: I feel like you're saying, you know, you have to address people's lives. You know, getting more night vision goggles so you can see, you know, where drugs are coming over the Canadian or Mexican border at night or whatever. Like that's not really probably the solution.
1: No, we'll make them in our bathtub. You know, you don't. they don't have to come from anyplace else. We we know how to do it here, too. And there will be ways. It's a waste of, I think, good resources that would be better spent on education. And the education is that the brain adapts to any drug that you take regularly by producing the exact opposite effect of that drug. Therefore, you can't get enough to get high or to escape with time. And so we should ask, how do we live with the
0: challenges that we encounter every day without having to escape. Judith Grizel is a behavioral neuroscientist at Bucknell University. She's the author of Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction. Judith, thanks. This is great. Thank you. On our website, we've got some great podcast recommendations for you if you want to know more about drug policy and how it's changed and why and what that means for ordinary Americans. That's at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Acile Kibbe, and engineer Doug Sugarts. We also had production help from Nadia Lewis. And this week, we bid farewell to our fantastic intern, Hannah Ubele, who, fortunately for us, isn't going too far. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.